magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see Jane Pike, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to have you back again. It's been, oh, you were one of the earliest guests on the podcast. So I guess it's been a couple of years since uh, you were on the podcast, wouldn't you say? I think I saw a post of yours pop up where you mentioned it was the two-year anniversary. And that was really wild to me. Oh, or something around the two-year mark. There was something about two years in there, and I thought, hasn't been that long since I was on the podcast? It felt like it wasn't that long ago. But, yes, I was definitely one of the um, first people to pop up. Yeah, well, now it's now September 2022, and that was it was probably June or July or somewhere around there, 2020, that we started it. So, yeah, happy two-year anniversary. Wild, yes, happy anniversary. <laughs> and what's funny is today is actually the four-year anniversary of us guys rocking up to the World of Question Games in Tryon, North Carolina. I have such clear memories of that, pulling up <laughs> to that little place where we had to unload and then what were they doing in the first instance? that little area we had to go into and we led the quarantine. horses in there. Yeah. Oh, right. Quarantine. That was the quarantine check. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I remember the big adventures that followed after that. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was quite cool. That's funny. And that was in North Carolina and I've just come back from five days quarantined in a hotel room in North Carolina with, uh, with COVID. I went there to do a clinic and got kind of ill of, couple of days before the clinic and then I finally get around to taking a test and lo and behold I have COVID so we had to cancel the clinic and yeah what a mess. So you didn't actually get to do the clinic there you rocked up and no. oh. so I did a I did a, a a private clinic in West Virginia um, Tuesday and Wednesday and when I got done Wednesday I was like oh my bones my joints are aching Normally, and I thought, well, it's because I've been standing around for two days, but I do standing around for two days a lot at clinics and I don't feel like this, but I didn't think anything of it. And I went to bed that night and had the sweats and the shakes and then woke up the next day. And Welcome I didn't actually, to COVID. <laughs> and I, and I, it didn't even, didn't even occur to me that it might be COVID. And then I um, had to drive from there to an airport and then fly to somewhere else and I got there and then had the same thing the next night. So Friday morning, I'm thinking, oh, shit, it might be COVID. So I got up and took a test, which is the Friday, the day before the clinic, and turned out I I had COVID. And so, I, yeah, I got stuck in a hotel room in North Carolina ordering DoorDash. And, you know, so do you have DoorDash in New Zealand? No, I was just fascinated by that when you said it. Was it is that like Uber Eats or like the delivery like service? Like Uber that comes? Eats, yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm in a place where... Those things don't happen to me. I dream about those things. <laughs> well, if you think about the quality of food you can have it delivered to your door in North Carolina, if you just have a guess, I was living on that for five days. Luckily, some of the, the lovely clinic participants bought me some water and um, oh, a big batch of medicine, all sorts of different supplements and stuff, like the first day on the Friday. 
And so I had, I had, at least I had lots of water and I had, uh, had that. And then that lovely lady that who, who owned the facility where I was going to have the clinic, she had her husband bring me in a care package and I, I got some apples and some watermelon and a bit of a salad. And that was actually quite good, but yeah, anyway, I survived it quite well. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, my batteries are very drained. Mm-hmm. You're on the tail end. <clears throat> my batteries are drained, but apart from that, I, you know, I didn't end up getting the bad cough or any of the, the, the really bad things. You had COVID here earlier this year, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Just over winter, we got it in succession. So my youngest boy got it first and then Flynn had it and then I had it. And Giles was trapped in a COVID household for the whole month and never got it. So it's kind of an anomaly. And all of us had really different experiences of it. But definitely the fatigue afterwards was something that was really apparent to, in my experience anyway. And it seems like everyone has very different experiences of what they go through. But, yeah. Yeah, the, the fatigue's the one I found. Like I just, all of a sudden, I just like got no energy at all. Just got to lay down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Relatable. <laughs> Relatable. So, you know, this this whole round two of the podcast is, um, you know, some people because they were on the podcast, their life's taken a bit of a bit of a turn because they got exposed to a wider audience, and uh, that's not necessarily the the case with you. But you have what you do with your with your work. I think that when you were on the podcast the first time, you had just kind of completely revamped everything you had done with your work. And I'm not sure we actually talked about it a lot. We may have touched on that. But I know for a fact that since then, you've gone, you're a bit like me. You're like, oh, hang on, what I used to do? No, that's not right. No, there's this other thing. And so you've taken a deep dive into the nervous system after taking a deep dive into the nervous system. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah, well... The background hum to everything I do is continual study. And what I teach is very much a journey of self-discovery. I I learn it for myself and then I send it out into the world and hope that it applies to someone else's situation. And for me, there's that continual process of exploration and curiosity and just passion really for learning about what I learn about inevitably leads to evolution of ideas, evolution of understanding, evolution of application as to how this applies to both horses and humans. And inevitably you get to the point where what you were doing previously is just not cutting it anymore. It doesn't feel applicable or you're starting to patchwork quilt things together that potentially could be confusing to someone because there are streams of thought or ideas or ways of going about things that are in contrast. And so I got to the stage where what I was now practicing in my own experience was different to what I was teaching again, or I started to notice where the holes were, where things weren't adding up for me necessarily, or where I noticed that I would have Um, not I would have limited success because I don't actually create success for anyone, but where there would be limitations to um, how people were able to apply the work and essentially be able to do the thing ultimately that they wanted to be able to do. And so it's a big deal. I mean, I know you've been through this as well, because one of the things, one of the blessings and the curses of being in a space like we are, where our business is 
you know, has a big online presence and you're continually sending your ideas out into the world is that those ideas can also potentially freeze frame you in time. And people will look at something that you've written or recorded or talked about two or three years ago. And in their mind, that is you still now in 2022. And so to be able to shape shift and to be able to say, actually, I've, I've learned something and I'm changing what I think about things and how I apply things can, in, can require an incredible leap of faith and self-trust because you have to be willing to say, I think differently to how I think be- thought before. I'm teaching differently to how I taught before. And now I'm going to present this to you and give you the option of whether you stay with me or leave basically like whether you want to come along on this journey with me or you want to go. And so that the capacity to shot with something different actually requires the willingness to lose, to lose people who were with you previously, to lose people's, um, you know, I, the identity that people create for you within a certain way of going about things. And so for me, it just personally becomes intolerable if what I'm teaching and what I'm living in my own body no longer meshes with the content that I'm producing because those two things have to be in alignment for me to feel like I'm able to show up in the world and do what I want to do so I'm like it just gets to the no option phase where you're like oh here we go again all right team hold on (laughs) the boat's turning around (laughs) it's but it's a bit like you know it's a bit like science yeah. So where science's current understanding of stuff is just its current understanding of stuff and when it realises that it's reached the limitations of, of, you know, looking at things in through that lens, it doesn't work anymore. Now we go, okay, now it's, you know, it's, if you think about, um, I don't know, how quantum physics changed Newtonian physics, you know, it's mm-hmm. like well, we used to look at it this way, now we look at it. This mm-hmm. way, and but you touched on something a minute ago about you've got to be able to give, you've got to be able to, um, to lose people along the way, and and, and that's that's a life's work. That's that's the journey of life, right there. It, to be able to be true to yourself, and w- whether it's in the public space, like you or I might do it, or just in your own circle of friends, but be true to yourself and not hide, not shrink back from who you are for fear of offending somebody or, or losing somebody's friendship or whatever. So, I mean, that, that's yeah. not just a, I mean, that, that's personal work there, but it's also like business work in, in, in our case to where you've, you've got to, yeah, you've got to be not afraid to to show up as who you now are and as you grow. And, and, you know, an understanding that some people kind of get stuck in places and, and don't ever have to make those decisions because, the, you know, I know all about it. I was stuck in one spot for about 50 years, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, maybe 48. Um, but, yeah, that's – yeah, that's – that's the, it's, it's a that's reconciliation of your own patterns, really, like your people-pleasing patterns, your need to be liked, your, your mm. need to present in a certain way. There's a huge amount of vulnerability in um, being able to let go of that. And 
that happens on a number of levels, I believe. Like physiologically, you have to have the, the physiological capacity for your body to be able to hold its own, for your nervous system to be able to hold its own and go, I can make the choice to be in this situation, but I can also remove myself from this situation if it's no longer working for me. And that requires a certain amount of, of physical integrity, you know, to be able to do that because your mind and body are so inextricably linked. But then like we like we just talked about, it really is the the willingness to lose. It's like I am going to make a choice for me that reflects my understandings and knowledge and what I understand to be true for myself. And I'm handing over the choice to you as to whether that also applies to you. And so that is the 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 process of evolution as a coach where if I'm in a narcissistic position, for instance, it's like I'm doing this and I require you to agree with me. Um, I, that that means you can never be honest with someone. And so the the I, it's really important to me that in all of my work, I'm able to be honest as far as how it is I perceive things to be. And to be honest, you do have to do your own stuff. You have to do your own work because otherwise, if you are, you know, shaped by needing someone to like you or needing someone to agree with you, that will then shape how it is you interact. So I think that was a little bit off tangent, but it's kind of one and the same at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, as you, you know, yeah, as, as you grow, you get, you, you become more comfortable in your own skin. And I don't know, for me personally, it's, it's almost like I'm slowly, discovering who I am underneath all of the conditioned stuff from our culture, you know, like who, mm-hmm. who you, who you're supposed to be as a, you know, for me as a, you know, as a, a married man or you as a married woman or wh- whatever, you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. Ha- you know, how you're supposed the different to identities. be, how you're supposed to be in the world. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been interesting. And like, for, for you with your work, you are a lot like, you know, I've had a number of um, therapists on the show, on the podcast, um, people in the mental health space things, space, things like that. And something that I've discussed, I think, with all of them was the fact that all of them got into the work because they had some stuff going on and they got some help with it and they were so amazed at how different they were on the other end of that. They're like, well, I would like to teach this to others so that I can help others not only feel differently but feel differently about themselves sort of thing. And it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like what you are doing because you used to teach from a certain perspective which was kind of a top down would you say it was a initially Definitely. It was kind of a, yeah i came a, a in top, it from much more a mindset mental yeah, skills perspective yeah a top mm-hmm. a top down approach and then you realized you're in a situation where that didn't work for you mm-hmm. and so you're like okay well hang on let's redo this and so i think the last time we spoke you had redone your body of work but we're probably going to get into because you've changed it from there and now it's like, no, no, hang on. Yeah. Whoa, stop. It's not that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this, but it's coming. It's not coming from a place of, oh, I heard this new thing, so I'm going to tell you all about it. I mean, for me, 
um, you know, the, like the stuff I do with the horses and things like that, it's, it's from trying things at clinics or trying things with their own horses and, and like, oh, no, hang on. You know, like, for instance, for quite a long time now, and this is just a perspective change, not necessarily a, an application of something changed, but for a number of years now, I have been engaging with the mouth of a horse that's ni- kind of nippy, okay? It's probably mm-hmm. been mm, five years now, I guess. And for the longest time, I thought horses were doing that because they were wanting to engage with you, and I would engage with them back. So engaging for me would be if they want to put their mouth on me, I'm going to put my hands between me and them and let them rub their teeth in my hands or, you know, rub their lips if they want to play with their lips or whatever. And for the longest time I've been thinking that they do that because they want to engage. And some horses seem to just want to engage a lot. You know, like Robin's stallion that we've had for a couple of years now, you know, when we first got him he was very, very shut down, like very obedient reigning horse. I'll just do whatever you say. I just I won't look at you sort of thing. And when we brought him out of the shutdown, he was like just, constant you get it take me half an hour to saddle him because I'd, I'd walk over him with the saddle pad and as i'd go to put the saddle pad on his mouth would come around and so i would hello how's it going you know engage with him and the thing about engaging with them is there's a Brene brown quote that i love which she says don't shrink back don't puff up just hold your sacred space and when you've got a thousand pound animal who's coming at you with their teeth it would be very easy to shrink back and go oh my god or puff up and go, hey, stop, don't do that to me. But I try to meet them with the, hey, how's it going? I don't, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's bad. It just it kind of is. Um, and I've been doing And so he was pretty constant about it. And my horse Bundy was very constant about it. And I just, every time I was around him, I would engage and engage and engage him. Both of those horses at about probably six or seven months in of doing that every time you're around them, they both stopped doing it. And I had this per- perspective shift to where, oh, this is the way I look at it now, right or wrong. I don't think they're wanting to engage with you. I think they're checking to see if you're present. And if you can prove to them that you are present every single time you were around them, a hundred times a day, however many, however long you're around them, and they just keep doing it. And you, every time they come over, you're like, hey, how's it going? After a while, they go, Oh, I don't need to check on you anymore. You are present. I think they actually teach us to be present around mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And once they teach you for long enough, you become to where you are never not present around them. And so neither of those horses are mouthy anymore in the slightest bit. Neither of them I've had to tell them to not do it. But for the longest time, I thought they wanted to engage, but I don't. I'm at the point now, I don't think they want to engage. I think they're just, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? And if you can pay attention often enough for long enough, at some point in time, they just put you on the, they put a check mark beside your name. Like, yes, you can, you can come through the velvet rope. You're, you're in the, you're in the, in the group now sort of thing. And that's got the VIP pass. (laughs) Yes. It's like a VIP pass. And it's, and it's, um, and that's just the way I look at it. I, I could be talking out my ass, you know. I, I could be totally wrong, but that's been a perspective change I've had on that. Now, I'm, I'm never going to go back to slapping them around saying, hey, don't bite me. So that's, that's gone by the wayside. But then, like I said, for a long time, I thought they were wanting to engage. 
Mm-hmm. And, but after these two particular horses who were about as bad as each other, if you want to call it bad, but as persistent as each other about the whole thing, when it went away about the same time, I'm like, hang on. Hmm. They're not trying to engage with you. They're checking to see if you are present. Yeah. And once once you proved, and I don't know if you prove to them you're present or you just get to the point to where you're always present around them so they don't have to check on you anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that's, you know, it's a perspective change that, and I'm sure that's kind of totally different, kind of the same as what you're going through is you get a different perspective on something you had a, a certain perspective on before. Yeah, and as well, it's just like a holy fishing net sometimes, you're understanding and you're tracking through with this with this net that catches many things, but some things fall through the holes. And then you find a different layer where you're like, oh, there aren't holes in that net anymore. I get why that was the case. And eventually the whole net has to be different. I don't, it's just a completely random analogy that I just made up, but it, it, it does feel like that. It's just like, it's, inevitabil- it's an inevitability. It, it, it just the decision makes itself it's not that I was like well crap I'm gonna have to change everything that I'm doing it's like it is changing it has already changed like the 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 reality is now I just need to catch up with it from a from a teaching perspective because now it's lived in my body long enough that in order for me to be congruent with what I'm bringing forward now we're changing and it's done and let's just keep going now <laughs> yeah so it's pretty fun. Do you want to talk about, so <clears throat> I mentioned a minute ago, so you kind of went from a, a top-down approach to more a bottom-up approach, a, a body-centered more than mind-centered. Would you say that was the first iteration? Yeah, so the, I guess my initial introduction from a horse world perspective was very much focused around anxiety and confidence and um, very specific fear-based issues that people might have been having um, from a from a riding perspective, and if I was to cycle back even walk even more as early as I can remember, and this was um, no mistake, it was a product of the way that my family life was at that particular moment in time. I could think of nothing worse than not being in control of your own mind. That was basically my my overriding thought for as early as I could remember. And there were people very close to me that really struggled significantly with mental health issues. And I was adulting probably well before I, my age required it. And my motivation from that point was to fix things. I wanted to be in a position where I could fix things for these people that I loved. And also there was a fear-based motivation of, I don't want to become that, (laughs) right? So you've got like these two strands that are in operation. One is coming from a more loving, altruistic perspective and one is coming from, well, (laughs) well, I don't want to fall in that hole. Like that, that seems like a really scary place to be for me. And so everything that I did from that point really was part of following that, that train of thought. And I did lots of things in my life which kind of took me outside of horses and sent me on various adventures, which we talked about before. But for me personally, the practice of the work really did come to life through the lens of horsemanship, through the lens of my horses. And I could make sense of things in conversation with them and in communion with them, if you like. And so after I left my competitive riding life behind, 
there was this those two strands running in parallel you know my horsing adventures and then the quest that I was on to find out how the body worked how the nervous system worked how we could be mentally strong that was probably the first place that I came from how do I get tough enough to withstand these pressures from the outside that potentially could cause me to go to a place I didn't want to go mentally and emotionally and so I guess the beginning point was a point of fortification, if you think of it like that, like how do I fortify myself against these outside forces so that I'm a buffer, you know, they're kind of pinging off me and I don't have to take on everything that comes in and that can create, that creates barriers. Then you're, then you're a, a fortress to go, what's going on to the outside, but you're not also allowing things to come in. And so that was the beginning point that I guess also really married well with lots of common strands of thought around sports psychology, which is like, how are you going to be the man on the field? How can you mentally overcome your opponents? You know, all of these types of strands of thinking that are very much part of a a patriarchal culture, I guess, and a dominating culture about you just have to, if you can be strong enough, you can force your way through any situation. And a lot of what I did, although I was never that person, came from that lineage, you know, came from that, um, that strand of thought. And so the mindset, how do I, the mental toughness, the mental strength was the first part. And alongside of that, I was always very interested in Eastern philosophies and and yoga and um, breath work and lots of different alternative or what we would call alternative ways of um, coming home to yourself, if you like. And that I went into with a great amount of zest and enthusiasm and so much so that I was like, I'm going to be that person that goes to the cave and like meditates their way through life. And that's definitely going to be me. And then I realized I really liked the world and being in the world and being with people. And I didn't really want to be in a cave, but then was that the requirement sort of thing? So there's been but, this. But you did go to, you did go to India for a while, though, didn't you? Yeah, I was in it. Like when I talk about being in these studies of thought, I I didn't just like dip my toe in. I was in it for like a couple of decades um, in India in, you know, I did lots of emergency aid relief work and that took me to parts of the world where these strands of thinking and these practices were accessible. So I, I did go to the ashram. I did study yoga therapy. I did do the immersion programs. Like I, I did it. Um, and Eventually, after a couple of decades, like I'm talking about, you know, doing it, um, I got to the other side and there were still challenges. I was like, well, some of this stuff isn't doing what it says it's supposed to do on the box. (laughs) You know, like I still sometimes feel like a bit of a hot mess. (laughs) What's going on here? And also the people around me that, you know, your colleagues in different adventures as well that you know quite intimately and they're teaching something on the mat that you know is completely juxtaposed to their actual personal experience, that they struggle with anxiety or they have eating disorders or there's body dysmorphia or all of these things going on. It's like, I just, I'm saying one thing and I'm expressing one thing and my personal experience is often very different to what it is that I'm sending out into the world. And so the nervous system work came from that place. And, you know, I think this is new to the world, really, the understandings of the nervous system, neuroscience and so on is is very recent, only recently permeating our consciousness. And so <clears throat> I've been following that that train of thought and and it got to the point where 
The first entry in, and this is perhaps one of the biggest differences between where I was a couple of years ago and what I'm really immersed in now, is that I was very much about focusing on sensation and feeling and interpreting my nervous system state from that place. So I would be like, this is how I feel in my body. Therefore, I must be in a fight flight response or I must be in having a flight response if I'm anxious or I feel angry. Therefore, am I in my fight response? And so I would be interpreting um, my physical reality or my nervous system reality through subjective means, through how I feel. And where I've moved on from that is to a much more um, a different approach that really incorporates ways of understanding how your nervous system is expressing and how the reality of your life really is expressing through understanding the different the ways that the nervous system shows up in movement. Is this making sense so far? Um, and so there's a, a real gift, in, in my opinion, with the work that I'm doing now that I've found where I'm able to separate out my subjective interpretations, which is my conditioned mind, from the reality of what is actually happening in my body. And when I have a yardstick that is objective to say, okay, this this is how the body changes in the fight response. This is how the body changes in the flight response. And I'm able to recognize that from a structural perspective, I can start to reconcile all of these fabricated ideas about what I am and who I am alongside that experience. And it's been completely life-changing, actually. It's been totally life-changing. Yeah. Have you found <clears> – <throat> so how long have you been doing this uh... – new inverted commas stuff so personally i've been practicing for about three years mm. um and in like lots of different training programs with it so the trainings are really extensive um and then i came into it through so the somatic experiencing world that kind of um way of interpreting the nervous system was where my where I got really interested in things from a sensation-based uh, perspective and lots of training that I was doing within that, I got introduced to what I'm doing now and I was like, oh, that's really interesting, but very different, but really interesting. And at first it didn't make any sense to me um, because it was so different from what I was experiencing, but it started to feel, like I said, lots of holes. And then I had to, the, the complexity of it meant that I really needed to have a good understanding of it in my own body before it could be something that I taught and so yeah it's been something that I've been doing for longer than I've been teaching it much longer than I've been teaching it uh, well, the reason I was asking that I wasn't questioning your integrity or anything what I want to know was since you've been you know because because you and I are both in the educational sphere mm -hmm. um in like stuff that I've been messing with for a number of years now and it's almost like each iteration of it, as I share the iterations of it, the feedback I get from people, so as things get more subtle for me at least, um, the feedback I get from the general public who are doing these things with their horses at home or some people may not even been doing with horses. I've had people doing them with cows. I've had people doing them with wild <laughs> animals. Um the the feedback 
I, I think what what um, what am I trying to say? What kind of guides me is partly is my experience, but then partly is the feedback I get from people experimenting with this stuff and saying, "Oh my goodness, I did this," but you know, whatever. How has been the feedback um, with this new the, the newer stuff you're doing? You, you you find that you are getting more wow factor, like people like, "Oh yeah, this is." This is the stuff. Like this made a huge difference in my life. It is a mixed bag and it's only a mixed bag because it's not a quick fix and it requires full self-responsibility. And so the people who are with me and really adventuring on this path together who have been doing the work for, say, a year, um, six months or a year, have had phenomenal changes to their life experience, not just their horsing experience, but their life experience. And it really depends on your start point um, as to how quickly you notice changes in the work because there's different. There's a difference between things changing and you being aware of things changing. <laughs> Those are two different things. And from a practice perspective, We are so conditioned to want to know if we're doing it right, to want to know exactly how we should be doing something and what we should be doing. And the thing about the movement work that I teach and what I teach in general is that there is no fixed outcome that we're looking towards and there is no such thing as getting it right. And so if your model is that you are wanting to please me when you're doing it or you're wanting to know if you've got it right, there is a period that you go through at the start, which can be incredibly frustrating because you're not getting the feedback to your patterns that you require in order to say you're a good human or what a good job you're doing and all of those things, which can be a, a disconcerting place to rest. Um, and so I would say that, you know, there's there's incredible changes that happen and that's why I do it. Like the, it blows me away what I see, but I'm not making those changes and the work's not making those changes. It's just an understanding of how, the body works and how ultimately to create adaptability within your nervous system that people then apply and they see the change in themselves. And so, yeah, it's why I say it depends where you start is that if someone comes into the work and they're in a more kind of conservation of energy mode, more collapsed state, they're likely to see less changes faster in the beginning than someone that might be in a more active stage of fight or flight simply because of how the body's receiving information and processing it. And so it's it's incredibly varied in terms of um, people's experience, and it should be, right, because it's like this is about your experience. And the other side of it is it's also about starting to trust yourself and your interpretation of what's what your body is communicating, which we've been talked out of. Um, you know, we're so in favor of analytical thought and um, questioning and people are so stuck in that overthinking mind that when something does change in their body, it'll be like, oh, I think it changed, but probably not. Like that's the, that's the first kind of um, process of starting to get in touch with your intuitive self. You know, it's like, oh, I had a sense something changed, but because it's not completely concrete, let's not go there. Let's just pretend it didn't change. (laughs) And so when you start to be able to trust your own internal processes as well, you start to see a shift in what's happening. And, and it's, it's pretty mind blowing. Like it really, it really is mind blowing, but it's not for everyone because it just, it, it, it is a process of, um, 
no one's fixing you from the outside. No one's really telling you what to do. You confront yourself, I guess, and you have to be willing to be in that container. But, but in my experience, it's the only place to be. Like it's, um, it's the best place to be, but it's not the easiest place to be. <laughs> you just said it can, you confront yourself. A friend of mine from Holland a few years ago, she said, your horse confronts you with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Um, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, <clears throat> it sounds like the, the people that might struggle with it, that you've, they've got to be able to get rid of expectations. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing with horses these days, it's just, it's, you know, one of the things I suggest people do, if they've got a horse that's, that's kind of standoffish or, you know, doesn't want to be around you or is hard to catch or any of those sorts of things, not a pushy horse, but a runaway sort of a horse is something I suggest people do is just make it a habit of go out in the pasture and, have a seat, sit mm-hmm. down, hang out, you know, meditate, journal, read a book, mm-hmm. whatever. Just just be out there. Just get in the habit of showing up to where you don't have any expectations and you're going to start to rewire that horse's brain as to what's going to happen when you show up. You know, usually someone mm-hmm. shows up and they're trying to catch you and they want to do something, you know. And so I just tell people just just go out there with no expectation and just Mm-hmm. Sit down. And I was at um, Equine Affair in Ohio this year and I was at the booth and this lady came up and she goes, hey, I've been following some of your stuff and I got this horse, you know, and he's hard to catch. And anyway, I've been going out there for a couple of weeks and I just sit in the pasture with no expectation and he hasn't come up to me yet. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, do you realize you just told me that you went out there with no expectation, but now you're, the expectation that you don't, you say you don't have hasn't been met? And she looked at me like, Oh. And I and I and the trouble with it is 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 that expectation is palpable to a horse. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to you've got to be doing the work with just doing the work. And you you actually said something in that little chat there about um, having faith or something. And there's a there's a quote I shared recently by um, I think it's well Gabby Bernstein's the one I saw share it, but I think it's from someone named Marianne Williamson, and it's. Those who have faith can afford to wait and wait without anxiety, I think mm-hmm. is the That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, so much of it is about control. Um, humans have a need to control uh, and we're taught to control and we, we aim to control everything around us, our environment, in order that ourselves are able to be okay in that environment, right? And so we've got into a state now where our unconscious processes aren't valued or recognized to the extent that they should be and so a huge part of what I do is really recognizing the role of the unconscious brain and the conscious brain in movement in in emotion in mindset and starting to practice what your conscious brain is designed for which means giving up control right so if we consider the unconscious brain The role of the unconscious brain is the information collector. We have 19 different sensors which are feeding into our environment all of the time, uploading information to our reticular activating system, and our reticular activating system is using that information to decide, are we safe? That's essentially the question that your brain is asking all of the time. And in response to that, 
there are two different answers that it can choose. It can say yes, which is when my brain then sends out a parasympathetic response, or it can say no slash we're not sure. So we're going to err on the side of caution and we'll send out a sympathetic response. And how my body moves and operates in parasympathetic is very, very different to how my body moves and operates in the sympathetic system. And where we also get ourselves unstuck is then, okay, well, what then is the role of the conscious brain? The conscious brain is essentially receiving information from the unconscious brain, like a projector onto a movie screen. And my role then is to decide what to do with that information and to take action off the back of it and then to observe the consequences of my action. And that is the sole purpose of the conscious brain, to observe, decide, take action. Those three three main qualities. And instead, we're using our frontal lobe as like the processing system for our entire body to control our body, which is an unconscious processing uh, system ultimately, and also to decide our level of safety. And we're all just completely fried because we're just thinking our way through life instead of feeling our way through life. And so the work that I'm doing is like, wait, 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 like you're, you're using this part of your brain for purposes it isn't designed for and wondering why the short circuits are short circuiting. <laughs> and now if we place the role of that back into this part of your brain, your unconscious brain, now you have to relinquish these patterns of control that are falsely you know, trying to tell you that they are controlling your life in some way. And that process is a, is one of surrender and one of renegotiation and can be kind of funky to get your head around in the, in the meantime. But that's ultimately the, you know, the process it's like, am I able to allow my body to work in a way that really promotes the parts of my brain using themselves for the purposes that they're designed for? Um, and that in turn informs how my nervous system operates as well. So that may or may not make sense. I'm happy to elaborate. <laughs> that, that giving up control thing. You know, you the last time you and I were together was a couple of years ago. You, you came out to California to present at the Western States Horse Expo. And you were here at the house and we were talking about Alex Honnell. So if you guys at home, Alex Honnell is one of the world's uh, best rock climbers. And he had, at the time, a movie had just come out featuring Alex Honnell. It was made by a filmmaker named Jimmy, Jimmy Chin. Yeah. Mm. Uh, a filmmaker named Jimmy Chin made this documentary on Alex Honnell, who he free soloed El Capitan, one of the routes up El Capitan in Yosemite. So it's 3,000 foot wall of sheer granite and Alex Honnell climbed it with no rope. So it's what's called free soloing. So there is no margin for error. And what was interesting at the time was you said to me that, and I'm, I might get this wrong. You can correct me if you, if I'm misinterpreting what you said, but the, what I got from you was you said the, the amazing thing about Alex Honnell is he does that. He climbs El Cap with no, you know, free solos, and he is fully aware that any slip is 
is certain death. And I was kind of like, well, duh, but the way you put it was some people don't go through life that way. Like some people might might free solo certain, you know, routes and climbs and stuff, but they're not actually letting themselves in on the on on that fact and I, like they're, like they're, they're kind of blocking out so so reality yeah blocking out reality do you, do you remember that conversation i do i don't remember the details of it but i do remember clearly talking about his process mm, because, yeah. and the only reason i bring that up is because i have had um some experiences recently well, at the, at the time, actually, sorry, at the time when you had said that, I thought, hmm, I wonder if I'm going through life not, you know, if I'm going through life blocking blocking mm-hmm. out certain things. Anyway, I've had a couple of experiences um, recently, spiritual type experiences, to where I, I guess I became fully aware of the fact that, I don't know, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, both of these experiences kind of made me aware of I don't know how much, how would you say, how much I've been actually denying reality and how, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. You know, I think this is the essence of everything that I can trace it back to, which is if I can, if we consider the function of the nervous system overall, it is in order for me to meet reality, in order to meet the reality of the moment and for my brain and body to respond appropriately. Meaning that if I am required to be in my sympathetic nervous system, that I produce either the fight, flight, freeze or collapse response. And if that's not required, then I shift back into my parasympathetic nervous system. I shift back into homeostasis and I'm adaptable within any of those phases, within any of those situations. And the adaptability requires a willingness to meet reality, right? A willingness to meet the moment. And for many of us, we are unwilling to meet reality and we are stuck in one of our seven sympathetic motor reflex patterns that produce very tangible structural changes in the body. So every motor reflex pattern, every sympathetic pattern of fight, flight, freeze, response, and the three different stages of collapse have different ways that the structure of our body changes. We can track the ways that the body changes as it moves through those sympathetic reflex cycles. And so if I'm living more in my sympathetic nervous system than not, I can only ever respond reflexively, meaning that I'm no longer responding to reality. I'm only responding with one of these reflexive patterns, which is either something I've experienced before. It's always going to be something I've experienced before because now I'm no longer taking in new information that's allowing, allowing me to be different. 
And so as your nervous system starts to shift and as you do establish that adaptability and responsiveness, you become more aware of the truth of your situation. And sometimes the truth of your situation is kind of shitty, right? Like it's not always rosy. It's, it's facing mortality. It's facing the reality that perhaps this happened to you or that happened to you or this current situation isn't serving you in some way. That is reality. That's the capacity to face reality. And the ability to be in that, the ability to be able to sit with that and be uncomfortable, to be, to be, allow other people to be uncomfortable, to actually ask hard questions and just consider the answers without needing to dissociate or escape or be defensive is, requires a a huge amount of, um, a huge amount of physiological capacity as well. My body needs to be able to receive as much as it can push away. Yeah, my, my pulsation patterns, my vibration patterns in the body need to be active, that I have enough life force that I can literally sustain the energy of that experience. And so over time, as, as you do establish that adaptability and as your physiological self is able to stand in its own stead, you're able to ask and be aware of the harder questions. Um, but until you're willing to face up to, to reality, which is the not so good with the good, the very unshiny with the shiny, and be okay with all of that, it's not good or bad, it just is what is, then we're always going to be in holding patterns in some shape or form. There's always going to be a part of us that's like stuck in a particular cycle. And, and you see it with the pelvis all the time, for instance, like the, the pelvis is... Um, you know, it changes so dramatically. All of the, the structures of the body change so dramatically. But for if we have an unwillingness mm-hmm. to meet the moment in something, the actual bowl of the pelvis folds in and up as part of our sympathetic reflex. And we literally close ourselves off from the world in a, in a structural way. So, you know, this, um, we talk about mind-body connection, but it's really like there is no separation. It's like mind is body, body is mind. They're all together and one and the same. Um, and so your experience of like, you know, oh, crap, we die. Like it seems so obvious, right? But as humans, we spend our whole life denying that um, and, and living like there's just endless possibility and, and not making choices or not being decisive about where it is we put our energy because we feel like there's always going to be next time. Um, and so that's a, I've been going through similar things and it's really, it's challenging to hold, to be like, okay, instead of just going, oh, I don't want to think about that. Let's just turn on Netflix and just pretend that that never happened. That thought never happened. Can I explore different ideas about mortality? Can I like research this more or can I just be with it in a situation where there may be questions that we ask that actually don't have answers? And can I be okay with that? That the purpose of the question is the question itself rather than finding the answer to the question. Um, That I can only live the answer. I can't know the answer before it's lived. So there's a certain um, capacity that we get to, I think, with adaptability from a nervous system and physiological level that allows us to sit with those bigger questions and not necessarily have a need for them to be answered or for us to be able to control how they might manifest in any one particular way. Yes, it was, it was, um, yeah, interesting for me to, to fully understand or fully come to grips with how much fear I actually have but working through some of this stuff uh you know like I said I had a couple of different experiences but the 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 second of the experiences after that 
I could take a much deeper breath than I've ever taken in my entire life. I didn't actually realize it was possible for me to take that deeper breath. There's been a, there's been a restriction in there. And so before, if I took a deep breath and it would be and get to a point. And now when I do that, it gets to that point and it's, I, I can, I can take almost twice as deep a breath as I've, I've ever taken. And so in that experience, there was, there was a, a letting go of some sort of restriction. Well, for, from a structure, from a structural perspective, one of the things that is so misunderstood, I think, or it's not even misunderstood, it's just not known, is how much the structure of our body changes with our nervous system changes or just changes from moment to moment. So the, the bony structures of your body are constantly moving with the breath. The way that your body articulates and moves in space is very different in response to what it is that you're you know, doing and what it is, the sensory information that's coming in and a particular pattern that your nervous system has, cho- has chosen at any one moment in time. And so what you talk about, like if we talk about the bladder, the position of the bladder is very different from parasympathetic to sympathetic. The, the ways that the organs put pressure on each other is very different from parasympathetic to sympathetic. And so if, you, if the overall way that your body is, is um, meeting life has changed, its dominant pattern has changed, then the capacity of your organs to function differently, the capacity of your bladder to function differently is inherent to that change, like is part of how things manifest in your body. And the same, like you talked about how you notice that, you know, you have different breath capacity with the letting go of a particular thought cycle. Every thought that we have lives in our body in a specific motor pattern. And so as you start to move in novel or different ways, or as you start to change the way that your motor patterns are, your dominant patterns of use, any thoughts which are associated with that particular area, any emotions that are attached to that particular area get revealed to your conscious brain as well. Because if as something seeks to change, you have to know what you're changing, right? Like you can't let go of something without being aware of it. And so oftentimes as our body is making these shifts, we have these seemingly completely random or lacking context thoughts and experiences or memories that might float up into our awareness. And it simply is a process of moving through. It's a process of like my body's shifting its patterns. Now all of the thoughts and emotions that are attached to that have to also move through. And, and my role is to simply notice them and not to invest in them because um, it's the investment that pulls me back into the sympathetic cycle potentially. Just some small talk, (laughs) a regular small talk session. (laughs) Just a regular (laughs) small talk session. You know, I just, uh, not very long ago, I spent a, so I did a clinic in Georgia and then that Sunday night I took the red eye and flew from Georgia to Oregon, which is basically the east coast of America to the west coast of America. And I spent um, five days with a previous podcast guest, Stevie Delahunt, at a gaucho derby boot camp so i've signed up to do the gaucho derby which is a 500 kilometer horse adventure survival thingamajigger in uh, patagonia yeah and so uh stevie and her husband dylan they have done both the mongol derby and the gaucho derby and they teach people how you know they pre- prepare people for it. and i've never oh, really the done derby. 
Yeah. Um, and I've never really done any distance riding before, you know, like apart from I think the camels in Mongolia might be the <laughs> furthest I've ever ridden an animal in Australia. Um, and up there uh, with them, something I realised that I'd, I'd – I'd, and that was that was where part of that restriction went away, but but I think it had gone away partly before that. But what I became, what I realised there that I I've never been comfortable cantering downhill on a horse. There's always been like a like a shit what, and sometime during that week. And so this is on top of the experiences that I'd had that I think let go of some things. But sometime during that week. I realized that I was totally comfortable cantering downhill on a horse. Like I was cantering downhill and I was wanting to canter downhill and not cantering downhill with that little bit of, oh, shit, Brace. that little bit of tightness somewhere in there. And, and I've realized it's always been there. And it hasn't, and I don't think it's just been cantering downhill. I think it's been <clears throat> a part of my, part of my riding Everywhere, but cantering downhill. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, cantering downhill has been. It's thinking back now. It's been obvious that it's there that I haven't. But it's one of those things I've ignored because I haven't paid attention to my body, you know. But yeah, I at the end of that week um, up there, I I felt great riding at any speed in any saddle, you know, in any terrain. The the last mm-hmm. day, Stevie's husband, Dylan, and I went for a bit of a bit of a ride and he's this mad south african bloke and yeah we just went flat out on these on these tracks and ended up galloping i was like man from snow river stuff and and yeah i've I've never actually done anything like i've done stuff like that before but i've never done it and been you know basically fear free like mm-hmm. resistance free like there's always been a, mm-hmm. oh shit. like i was just mm-hmm. going and it was yeah it was a uh, it was a pretty amazing, amazing feeling. Yeah, that's really cool. It's um, our bodies are so amazing. They're designed to be adaptable and constantly shifting and changing in response to our environment and what it is that we're you know in coordination with. So, albeit our horses, or albeit the terrain. And something I found really fascinating and where my work has shifted a lot as well is around um, biomechanics from a nervous system perspective as well. And so when we consider um, the reticular activating system and when we consider the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems, they're actually under the motor control umbrella of the nervous system overall. So predominantly they're unconsciously activated. They're part of the autonomic nervous system, which means I can't consciously decide if I'm going to be in the parasympathetic or the sympathetic. And because they're under the motor control system, it means that every time my body sends out either a sympathetic or a parasympathetic response, something changes in the structure of my body. And what you've just, you know, the story, I can kind of break it down in different ways, but um, just from a nervous system perspective, which I always find really fascinating. But if we think about what the motivation of the body um, from a physical perspective is, is in sympathetic, it is to maximize our force output and maximize the surfaces of acceleration so that we can protect ourselves or that we can run away from whatever it is that we're trying to run away from. 
And in order to do that, the fascial system dehydrates and it does that in order to pull the bony surfaces together so that they are, we have more surfaces of bony contact to power off. And also uh, the lumbar spine becomes the main leverage system for the legs and the cervical spine becomes the main leverage system for the shoulder girdle. And so that's synonymous with sympathetic. But what it does is as the pelvic floor, um, as the, the fascia of the pelvic floor and the bony, bony uh, sorry, the soft tissue of the pelvic floor dehydrates, it pulls up and into the body and pulls the two sides of the pelvis together which means that now my pelvis can only function like a teeter-totter. It can only move forward and back and it loses the transverse motion of the pelvis, which is the, t- the ability of the two sides to move on the horizontal plane and also to function um, independent of the other. And so you see this quite a lot in people who are in sympathetic reflex patterns with their horses and that the way that their body is structurally positioned in space makes it very, very difficult for them to adapt or they have a limited range with how, in terms of how their body can move in response to their horses, simply because there's only one, um, one way that the body can be when it's in one of those seven reflex patterns. And so what you've described really beautifully is the way that the body makes change is through sensory feedback. So now I'm riding over lots of different terrain, right? Like it's up, it's down, it's rough, it's smooth. There's lots of different feedback coming into my body that my pelvis is now needing to respond to. And the pelvic floor in the first instance um, gets that feedback and we can feel a little uncomfortable for the first while where it's like, wow, okay, things are sort of shifting. <laughs> and then as you start to become adaptable and your body is now um, not opposing the environment or circumstance, but now it's moving with the environment and circumstance, you don't feel the same physical resistance to what's happening in your, literally as you're riding. And so the emotional resistance isn't there as well, because it's like, well, if my body's shape shifting in response to what my horse is doing and the environment, what do I have to be worried about? You know, it's only if I can't meet those two things that there's concern, right? Like if I'm able to stay with them, then I can go as fast or as slow as I like and there's no concern about it. Um, But we get into these, you know, we don't realise that being stuck in the sympathetic system or being stuck on one particular channel of our nervous system has physical ramifications. It has a way that it manifests in your body and it prevents you from being adaptable. And so this is not only reflected physically, but it's reflected emotionally and mentally. You know, there's with the fight, flight, freeze, so on response, all of them have their little behavioral patterns that manifest as part of that experience. And so that connection to me is really important as well. And one that's not there, which is your nervous system is affecting your biomechanics. Like it's just as simple as that. Like your, your reticular activating system is in charge of how your body is choosing to move in space. And so if you're ignoring the state of your nervous system and constantly looking to fix your body from the outside in through control or manipulation or, you know, trying to do this, that and the other from a sort of micromanagement point of view, you're always going to be at war with yourself because actually what's informing that is the choice of your brain. Um, And so that for me has been a super fascinating part of the journey and made a lot of sense as to why I might have struggled physically with some aspects of um, writing, uh, you know, and, and filled a lot of gaps in, in that respect as well. Yeah. It's all very fascinating stuff. Um, I thought right now we might actually talk about the rest of Jane world. <laughs> sure. Um, 
just because you have a, you know, I'm you have... secretly very boring. <laughs> <laughs> just, are you sure you want to go here? <laughs> yeah, I want to go there. I want to go there. You know, so you you have um, two young boys and you homeschool them. And we and we kind of talked a little bit before we started the podcast about how when you you start to live a certain way, otherwise people live. Um, might strike you as a bit odd or whatever. And you had said, you know, like you drive past a school and you and you look at that and you think, oh, there's, there's kids that just have to be in this, you know, this little factory kind of setting. Do you find that this stuff – I just can't imagine what your, your kids are going to be like when they – when they grow up because, you know, all this stuff that you're into, obviously you're not just doing it with people online. I mean, you're doing it with yourself. Do you find you can help your kids with, with uh, various aspects of their life because of the stuff that you've learned? Yes and no. I'm. I'm. St- that's a. That's a big part of life. The the parent piece is like I definitely don't want to put myself out there as like the guru of parenting in any stretch. I have the same struggles as everyone else, um, but I, it definitely informs the approach that I take to things and how I might negotiate challenges. And even more that, just recognize how my own stuff is influencing how it is I'm interacting with my children. And if I just deal with my own stuff and leave them to it, that actually their outcomes are likely to be better, you know, that um, that it's my patterns of, um, for instance, if you had a rough time at school making friends, for instance, and then your son comes home and says that they're having trouble socially it can really bring up anxiety in you because you're like, I remember what that's like and I really don't want that for you. And and so you can try to rescue them from their discomfort and not let them make their own mistakes and not let them learn to trust themselves in different situations because you don't give them the opportunity to experience cause and effect, right? And we just you just want to rescue your kids from stuff, which is really, really natural. Um, and the other side of it, which is a really big piece that I've noticed and that I've attempted to communicate with Giles as well is that us being irritated about things is actually our problem not theirs so if they're being loud or something like that they're allowed to be loud and my irritation is my problem it's not their problem I need to actually like make a choice within myself about that situation rather than to control them and how they behave and what they're doing in an attempt to make me feel better and I think as, as parents, we can really get into that place of like, I feel irritated by a behavior or what you're doing. And therefore you need to fix your behavior or what you're doing in order that I feel better. And that's a very sympathetic mindset to come from where we have a problem and then we seek everything on the outside to change. And if we're coming from a parasympathetic position, it's like, I will communicate that perhaps that doesn't suit me and I will give choices in light of that not suiting me. But ultimately, I am the one that's going to change. I'm going to remove myself from the situation or I'm going to get some noise cancelling headphones or I'm going to do something that like makes me the one that is adapting to the circumstance rather than trying to get everything else on the outside to, to change. Um, but So th- those are a couple of examples that popped into my head. But the the homeschooling journey has been 
a really, really interesting one and not an easy one. It was agonizing to start with, like leaving any system of traditional thought that has a lot of social support in any context. And people experience this in the horse world, in any world that you're in, that you're like part of that system. What was that? Can you just say that line again? Leaving any, leaving any. Like traditional traditional system that that has social support networks around it. Like there's an expectation of like your kid turns a certain age and they go to school. That's just what happens. Right. It's like, and, and, and if you don't do that, then the onus is on you to prove how you're not deficient. Right. In order to, in order to, you have to, you have to validate your reasons as to why you aren't the norm, why you aren't in that flow. And my work did actually play a huge part in this realization because I recognized that the brain learns through trial and error and through repetitious failure. And we also learn in movement. So the way that I learn is that I have information, I make a decision with that information. I take an action, I observe the consequences of my action, which tells me how far away I was from my original intention, and then I repeat the process, right? I repeat the process. And where we can get really stuck in that is we either overthink things without taking action, which doesn't give us more sensory information to observe, or in the observation stage, we observe things as right or wrong, good or bad. And that that process... Um, is intrinsic to many of our educational institutions. So this isn't um, uh, this isn't me being like us or them. Like I really recognise school has its place and it really works for some people. It just really didn't work for us. Um, and the part of that reason was because of these standardised modes of learning that pre- required children to be at a certain stage at a certain age, and this homogenized curriculum that took them towards that point. Now for, for my children and for my eldest, that created so much anxiety, just the testing element, just this idea that he had to be something that it removed his capacity to learn. And so then he labeled himself as something which is stupid or, you know, not smart at maths or all of these things, which is completely to my mind, ridiculous for an eight year old to be thinking like you're learning, you're in the world. There is no label of good or bad, stupid or anything at this stage, like at any stage, but it just in his mind, because of this outcome, this expectation, everything motivated towards that. And it just removed his capacity to be in the learning experience. And that created a lot of anxiety and I had this future projection down the line of like, I could see how this goes, right? You either shape shift to fit the system or you rebel against the system. Those are the two options that you have when you find yourself in that place. And for me, I thought I didn't want to be in a place where in 10 years time, I regretted that I had the opportunity to do differently and I didn't. Um, and and so that's what we did. We just leapt. And, and there was another point, I guess, which was a pivotal point for me where I sat in, like my littlest boy was just starting school. I think he went for like two weeks and they were all sitting on the mat. And again, I completely understand why this has to be the case. But, you know, one little girl was like, I'm hungry. And they're like, well, you can't eat till recess time. And another little boy was like, I need to go to the toilet. And it's like, I have to wait for the bell. And there was another little boy that was just wanting to move around, which at five years old, 
you do just want to move around like and so he had become already like the problem child because he was the one that couldn't sit on the mat for long periods of time and so the way that they sat on the mat was they had to put their head down and they had to put their hands in a um, crossed position again just like listen to the teacher listen to the story and the teacher was was lovely the classroom's lovely it's nothing that the kids are in any position of like not okayness but it's it's this gradual uh separation of you from your internal state where now you're eating at the time you're told to now you can't move when you want to now and to me it was horrifying I don't know why it's sort of like that process of waking up and realizing you're mortal I guess it's like what but it was just it was intolerable to me and I was like I think that I have these two super active boys who learn in very experiential ways and I'm in a privileged position where it's possible for me to be able to to consider education differently um and so that's what we did and it's it was terrifying <laughs> totally terrifying <laughs> you know the the that sentence that you said that i wanted you to repeat um it just reminded me of you know i have a lot of people um like in my facebook group and stuff that that say you know oh, it's terrible where I keep my horse because everybody's telling me I'm doing it wrong and I should be doing, and by this point in time, my horse should be doing this. And, 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 and it's, and it's very much the same way that like when those people stick to their guns and, and come out the other end, everyone wants to know, how did you, yeah. how did you get your horse to do that? But, but so the, 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 the common comment is, oh, you're so lucky. We could never do that. Wow. That, well, we, our kids are different. We could never do that. Oh, I'm right. different. And it's like, you're not different. Like we're not different. Like it was just, a, it's not easy. And that's the, the, it's also the convenience factor, right? Like it's convenient to go with the status quo in anything because you're in, in the flow. You're literally in the, you've jumped in the river and you're heading in the same direction. <laughs> so it's easier. Um, yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I, sorry for talking over you then. Oh, I'm no, excitable. no, t- totally fine. But yeah, it's, uh, they just, uh, the, I think there's just so many parallels between the, between the, that like the, the established status quo of what you're supposed to do with your horse, what you're supposed to do with your kids. And yeah. I think, you know, this is the journey on podcast. And so people who are possibly stuck in their ways probably aren't listening to this, but people who are on a bit of a journey and looking at things from a different perspective tend to be the people that listen to this. And I think there's probably a lot of people nodding their heads right now, whether it's, whether we're talking about kids or talking about, horses um but you know the more you know the more you kind of challenge that status quo and like the way we've always done things whether it's horses or kids or nervous system stuff or whatever Mm. yeah it's um it's it's big it's definitely big and it is, it is a privilege to be able to make that choice. Absolutely. I, I completely recognize that. Like I work from home and I'm the breadwinner. So my husband can be around to, you know, be with my children. And perhaps if that, if that was different, it may might not be completely possible, but it, it is just recognizing um, the choice that you do have and then just being in that choice fully. So it's like, I have my moments 
where I think, oh my goodness, what if my kids turn out to be illiterate delinquents and everyone was like, I told you so. Like, you know, that is a possibility. (laughs) I will step into that possibility. But so it's not about trying to be sugarcoating anything. It it can be tough, but it's, um, yeah, just being in your choices and just recognizing that you can make a choice and then change your mind as well. It's just knowing what feels right for you in the moment and I guess having the courage to to follow through with it which is always going to feel like shaky ground um yeah what's interesting as well which I think is similar with horsemanship is that as soon as you are outside you're then the one that is always open for questioning which is like well what about socialization are they like stuck at home all day with no friends and like I can't I can't keep up with my kids like and their social life and their the activities that they have on but it's interesting and I think this is the same from like a perhaps a traditional horse world perspective and one where you're stepping outside the norm where the majority feel okay with like questioning in very personal ways about your approach and what you do and what about this and what about the other but if you question the other system there's a lot of like defensiveness and it doesn't quite work both ways so it's just it's a very interesting um dynamic to challenge and to to observe and I guess just to find a peace within yourself about whatever it is that you choose and just roll with it yeah I think it's really about being true to yourself and what you actually believe and and i think as you go further down the rabbit holes um you know what you believe changes and 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 i I do think that you you talk you touched on this very early on in today's podcast was about um i exactly forget exactly how you put it but you know it's about Um, what am I trying to say here? My COVID brain has got me slowed down here. Uh, you know, about stepping into your truth sort of thing. That's the word I was looking for, like stepping into your truth and what you what you see as truth now might not be what you saw as truth before and it might not be what everybody else sees as truth too, but you have to, you know, you have to have the courage of your conviction sort of thing. Yeah, and, and it does get to the point, with everything that we've talked about, for me personally, anywhere, where it's not even stepping into your truth. It's like just this is the truth and everything separate, everything different to this feels intolerable. Like it's like it just got to that phase where it's like this is a difficult decision to take your children out of school. Everyone questions it in the beginning. Everyone's like, oh, <laughs> you know, like unless they're kind of in that area themselves, there's that, oh. Oh, that's interesting yeah and you get those kind of like vague uh, responses to the to the idea but the the alternative feels so intolerable that the decision makes itself and so you just kind of march ahead with what what you what you feel to be right absolutely and and that's the same with work related things as well it's like you know if I'm practicing something then that has to be what comes through me and what I'm teaching as well and um yeah so the decisions make themselves and I just follow along (laughs) you know i do feel though that that you know like so you have had kids in school you have had a normal job you have had you have been in the the um i don't know that i have had a normal job okay maybe i'm speaking at attorney but you know what i mean let's say with your kids or like for for me with horses or whatever um I have been in that situation 
to where I would judge somebody doing what I'm currently doing. You've been probably in the situation to where you'd probably judge somebody taking their kids out of school to homeschool them. So you can, you do have, I think you do have the benefit of hindsight to where you realize they're judging you, but because you have been there and not understood your current truth, you tend not to judge them because it's like, you, how could you know yeah. How could you view, how, how, you know, you think of the other person as how could you view this any differently than you're viewing it? I mean, I, you know, f- for me with the horse thing, you know, my change happened so quickly that it was very easy for me to look back and go, yeah, I, three years ago, I'd have thought you're a whack job. Mm-hmm. And so I have no qualms about you thinking I'm a whack job because I mm-hmm. totally, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And not only I, do I get where you're coming from? but I don't need you to agree with me and uh, well, I don't need something. you to even, I don't need you to even like me. So um, uh, you can have your opinion and you another, can have whatever you want. Yeah. That's another whole level of, of life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, then I don't feel, I don't even have to confront a pattern because it's not even an irritation. The, the only thing that I find to be irritating is when people will go around me to my children and confront them about situations that I feel like is my discussion if you want to have a discussion. Um, and, and when I see that happening, there's a level of kind of mama bear that might rise up in me. Um, but, yeah, if it's just about me, it's like, well, fill your boots. <laughs> fill your boots. <laughs> Uh, that's that's awesome. So, what's uh, how's how's all your horses going? You've got you've got a collection of them now. You keep. I have enough. Yeah, <laughs> I have enough. <laughs> I do have a collection. So, I have five, uh, range, in ranging ages. My youngest is my youngest is uh, he was born on Boxing Day, so he's eight months old now. Yeah, for the for the rest of the uh, well, not the rest of the world, but maybe for the USA, Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. I think is that not a thing in the US? Uh, no, it's not a thing in the US. I'd never even considered that. Mm. Yeah, so the twenty sixth of December, twenty twenty one. And so born. Boxing Day apparently it used to be when you would box up the things that you had out for Christmas. I oh, think see, I understood differently. You box up something. So I thought it's not about it was punching part... each other. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's but not I you're mad, it was... mad. It's not because you're mad because you didn't get the right thing for Christmas and you're punching your brother in the head or whatever. <laughs> so, which is probably more the reality of Boxing Day in yes. Australia where we grew up. But um, no, the, I thought Boxing Day was because all of the servants, it's sort of part of feudal British society, all of the servants would be occupied looking after the main household on Christmas Day. So Boxing Day was their day to have Christmas where they could like open their gifts and do the thing. It was like the servants' Christmas and they had some time off. I'm going to look it up afterwards. Look it up. It, w- <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. But anyway, I wanted to let it, we know in America that Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. Yeah, but so think, anyway. That's think the- about, think, let's, let's get off on a tangent here, feudal British society. Like think about, uh, I mean, when I really think about, colonialization of every country and and think about how short a time period that has been and the time period of the people who got colonialized 
and how long they were there before that. It doesn't matter if it's here in the US with the Native Americans, if it's Aborigines in Australia, Africa, no, no matter where you go, it's like, it's, it's, like, it's almost like when I said earlier on, like, you know, he recently had some experiences to where I realized I'm mortal and death is coming sort of thing. And it's, and it's almost like that, like you, you, the, the enormity of it hits you because we don't get taught that in our, you know, growing up at school. It's like, you know, like, a, like you grew up in Australia like I did. So Australian history is this. Mm-hmm. this 200 years or whatever and and they don't really talk about ah uh, yeah it's just sorry get off on a tangent but it's just mind-boggling no, when important. you really it is mind-boggling yeah it is and it's um it's a lot isn't it like you're like wow okay there's work to be done here and it's my work <laughs> and it's our work and and we just start I guess you just have to start and create different experiences and um, with that awareness, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. You were telling me about your horses. So your youngest one was born on Boxing Day. Yeah, we got yeah. I've we got went... five horses. I've got a weanling who is an Irish draft. He's a purebred Irish draft. And then I have the next one up is five. I have Merck, um, Freddie Mercury, and he is a station bred cross Pinto, um, he's pretty fabulous and I've been having a really good time with him. And then I have another Irish draft cross and then a couple of warm bloods in there. So a pretty different palette of horses out in my paddock that span different ages and um, and have very different personalities. So it's uh, I'm pretty fortunate to, to get to work with them on a regular basis and have them be a part of my experience. So how do you fit it all in? Like, you, you know, you're homeschooling two kids, you have five horses to look after and then you ha- you are a prodigious producer of social media content i mean how do you fit it all in i'm clear on where i'm happy to invest my time and where i'm not happy to invest my time and i'm clear on what's important to me and i prioritize it um and i have had times where I haven't got that right and will continue to have times where I haven't got that right, where I've linked my self-worth to productivity or I feel a compulsion to continue to meet people's needs or I feel like I'm letting someone down and that is a thread that I'm constantly looking to reconcile. Um, But I did a podcast recently about time and it relates to what I'm going to share now, which is in my opinion and in my experience, the ability to use time well is recognizing your limitations, is actually being very clear on what you can't do and and fully committing to what you can do. And that involves making choices on a regular basis and being decisive with your choices because we're presented with so much opportunity. You know, there's always a loss to every choice that you make. And this is where I think people get this feeling of like perpetual missing out or feeling like they should be doing something other than what they're doing, which is if I choose this, I'm not doing this. And for me, it's, I'm very clear, <laughs> uh, brutal, in fact, in the fact that the things that really fill me up and that are important to me are my horses, my work and my family. And I will choose them first um, over everything. I will choose them first. And so I, 
you know, perhaps my social life could do with a bit of an injection <laughs> because of the consequence of those choices. But, um, you know, at the same time, I do. Oh, gosh, it, I sound all quite self-aggregate, you know, self. I don't want to big ups myself in any way, but I do work hard. I get up early. You know, there's no two ways about it. I get up early. I'm at my desk at six in the morning, sometimes earlier. Um, I do work in those early hours because if I don't, I don't have time to ride my horses. And for me, that's the payoff that I'm willing to make at the moment, that if I'm up early and I've already done three or four hours work before nine o'clock, then I can be out there for two or three hours with my horses and figure out where my kids are. And then I can come back and, you know, shape shift between Giles and myself in terms of what gets done. And some weeks I'm super successful at that in whatever way that means. And some weeks it's, um, it's a lot. <laughs> it can be a lot, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm so fortunate. Have you ever read a book called The War of Art by a fellow named Stephen Pressfield? I think I've tried to read that book before a while ago and I never actually got to it. So it might be a timely mm. reminder. I had a had an amazing podcast guest recently, Christine Dixon, and uh, there were two books that she talked about in the war of um, in, in the podcast. And one was The War of Art by Stephen Presley, and the other one was um, called Oh God, what's it called? <laughs> Let me look up on my little tick, 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 tick. <laughs> I, I I can see it, but I can't. I can't see it. Let me look up on my library here. It's called, oh, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Mm. It's a lot of stoic philosophy. But uh, both of those books were really good, especially uh, The War of Art uh, about, because Stephen Pressfield is, is a writer. I think he's the guy that wrote The Legend of Bag of Vance, but he was a writer in, in Hollywood. But he talks mm-hmm. a lot about writing and productivity and, and coming up against resistance and stuff. And it was, it kind of, um, Gave me some good ideas about about that sort of thing. But, yeah, both very, very good books. I'm actually due to do a round two of Books That Have Influenced Me podcast because the, that one was two years ago and, you know, I've probably read and listened to a You've read the library a, since then. <laughs> a lot of books since then. So <laughs> speaking of I'm down some rabbit holes, but I just recently listened to a book called The Cosmic Serpent. Hmm. Uh, by a fellow named Jeremy Narby in The Cosmic Serpent. Uh, yeah, if, if I was going to give you the he's – he's an anthropologist who was in Peru studying tribes in Peru and had a um, – uh, you know, the, the, the tribes that he was with, they have the, the shamans that do the, 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 the ayahuascaros, the guy that goes, do the ayahuasca mm-hmm. and, and have all these visions. Anyway, they talked him into doing ayahuasca. And he noticed that in uh, – this is a trippy book, but he noticed in, in his ayahuasca vision that he saw these two snakes intertwined. And so then he starts looking into all sorts of um, mythology from all over the world, like native mythology from all over the world, and all of them have these intertwined snakes. And basically the gist of the whole book comes down to that, you know, we only – unraveled the dna code in 1984 or something or other and basically he (laughs) comes up with the idea that that all native shamans have actually had visions of what dna looks like back all the way back to whenever it's it's a pretty trippy book but Hmm. 
it um yeah it's a it's quite the rabbit hole i'm down but yeah that was that, was <laughs> that a, sounds like it's right up your alley <laughs> oh yeah no it was it was it was it was very, very cool he actually f- discovered that one of the guys that actually uh decoded dna wrote a book that said something very very similar one of the scientists that, <laughs> that decoded dna but yeah that's that's one of the whack job books that i <coughs> excuse me that i've been um reading recently what about you? you you probably don't get much time to read do you oh i read a lot of different books actually um i so i'm just trying to you know when someone asked me about this i can never remember a single title of a book that i'm reading um i've been reading a lot of classical dressage books by philippe carl mm. um a books which have been really interesting and that's been hugely influencing my written work as well so far um and another book I'm reading at the moment is called Extreme Survival, which is a book about how different people cope in different survival circumstances and what makes one person behave in one way and another person behave in another way. So those books are always really fascinating to me. And every now and then I try, because my books, the books that I read, and you're probably a little bit like this as well, I think every now and then, Jane, why don't you get a novel? Like just lose yourself in a novel. And I get like a chapter in and I'm like, oh, this is so, so unsatisfying. Like I just have to let go of the idea that I can be that person that embraces the novel because for the most part, I'm really into nonfiction or it always relates to like nervous system work. Yeah. Um, I, I was sick in bed last year and my friend came in and I had like the gift of pain on my bed, which is a book about a leprosy doctor who, um, has some really revolutionary ways of looking at pain. And she was like, oh, just some light reading while, you're, while you've been taken out. And I was like, it seems like a really appropriate book to read in this circumstance to like reconfigure my perspective of what it means to be immobilized right now. So, <laughs> yeah, but that's another really interesting book. Um, what else have I been reading? Gosh, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I've got so many books on the go. But those two are, yeah, Extreme Survival is one. And um, Surviving Survival is another really, really good book if you're interested in looking at people's response under pressure um, and the way that, you know, our sympathetic nervous system kicks in. They're very interesting books. Uh, sounds like you're into the survival books right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have not read a novel for – I used to read – I mean, I've always been a reader. Um, but, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the last time I – read a novel it's always they're all I don't even know how to find one like it's not I just look in the bookshop and I go by oh that cover is so attractive (laughs) I wonder if the words match up to the cover (laughs) that would be my way of picking out a book that isn't something that I have specifically targeted um yeah (laughs) it's a it's a thing it's a thing okay well it's been a thing um it's been so good to catch up with you again and hear all this stuff that you're up to these days. Thank you. Oh, it's fun to be here. I always feel like we just touch the edges or um, just get started and then it's already an hour and a half. So mm. so I'm so excited to seeing you in a couple of months, actually, at the Journey on Podcast Summit no, in San Antonio, I Texas. I know. I can't wait. I've booked my ticket. I'm, it's all systems go. <laughs> it's going to be such a... You know, the, the thing about it is going to be not just 
all the presenters being in one place at one time. There's there's that there's that energy, but the type of people who are coming there uh, is going to be yeah the energy is just going to be off the charts because everybody's kind of of the same bent sort of thing, and so it's going to be. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, I'm going to be. I'm looking forward to learning from everyone and um, up leveling. And and embracing the challenge of can I talk in a brief period of time? This is the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate test. Yes. Yeah, so one of the one of the things we are having uh, the guests do is do a, a TED style talk. So a, like a twenty minute talk. Uh, where they're actually going to be called TikToks, and Tik is uh, teach, inspire, and connect i think is what the tic stands for and yeah everybody's going to do a, a 20 minute TikTok, basically of what's the what's the guts of the message you want to spread with the world and so jane and i kind of talked about it before we start the podcast today to where jane's like yeah i've got to be able to you know she, what did you say i basically introduced myself in i can't 20 minutes. introduce myself in less than 20 minutes <laughs> We've been talking about it in Joyride. They've been laughing about that. It's a kind of an ongoing joke about how all of the live sessions we do take extended periods of time. <laughs> and um, I'm always making jokes about the need to be succinct. <laughs> yeah, so, but yeah. with, you know, with some of the stuff you're on about, it's very hard to be succinct and cover the subject matter. Yeah, it is. It is so. That's it's the ultimate test. I'll have to. I'll be playing Eye of the Tiger, and then I'll walk into the theme song of Top Gun. That's the type of zone I need to be in in order to 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 bring everything down to a twenty minute. Okay. <laughs> 20 minute. We got you. We got you covered. You'll be good. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, I saw the Top Gun sequel the other day. Have you seen that? I actually have. Yes. What did you think? I- I loved it. I was all over it. I'm like, yes, that's me. I'm going to be a fighter pilot, but I don't want to kill anyone. I don't want to have to go on special missions. I just want to be able to do that. (laughs) Didn't it take you back to the day though? Like, you know. It really does. And there was a group of, um, gosh, it sounds so patronizing. I was going to say there's a group of kids sitting in front of me. I'm not quite sure how old they were, but they weren't children of the 80s. Let's just put that out there. They weren't children of the 80s. And I thought to myself, you poor things, you're never fully going to appreciate what you're about to see because you were born after the fact. (laughs) You know, Tyler was not a child of the 80s, but he watched the original one before he went and saw, uh, I, I think he'd seen it before anyway, but he went and, you know, and for yeah. him, like he went to school in San Diego. So that, you know, Top Gun school is right there in, in yeah. San Diego. So they've seen it flying over there quite a bit, but yeah. Great movie. Pretty fun. Um, <laughs> so Miss Jane, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, how can uh, our lovely listeners find you? Well, there's a couple of different ways. I have my website, which is confidentrider.online and all their details of memberships and blogs and everything are on the website. And I also just relaunched my podcast. So I have got the Confident Rider podcast um, season two, which I had planned initially to take two weeks off and 18 months later, 
decided that that was probably quite a long two weeks and it was time to get <laughs> back with the program. Um, so I just relaunched that. It, I think we're coming up to the fourth episode of season two now. So um, it's back, back on the air and that's pretty fun. And I've been sharing um, the new ideas that I'm immersed in and the ways that I'm practicing now um, with the nervous system work and stuff on there. So that would be a good place to, if you're interested in hearing more about it, to tune into. Yeah, I listened to the first one while I was in, uh, uh, I think when I was driving to North Carolina before I got stuck in the hotel room. Um, yeah, it was, it was very cool. And I love what you're doing to where you're having, you're recording the podcast with a, a bit of an audience in front of you in a, on a Zoom call because uh, you, find, you find it so much easier to, to emote and, and be excited about stuff when you have like faces nodding in front of you and, you know, that, that, that feedback. Yeah, so one of the things I found really challenging about podcasts in the beginning, and I'm not sure what your experiences have been, but I cringe when I listen to the first episodes. I'm like, oh, I was much more wooden than I, I sort of found my voice along the way and figured out podcasting. But one of the things that I always uh, disliked, I guess, was the fact that mainly I was just sitting by myself in a room talking to myself <laughs> and that didn't feel very natural as far as the conversations go and what I love about teaching in my membership is I just really enjoy workshopping things and having conversations and so I had the idea with the actual podcast recording that I could record them live in Joyride and if anyone wanted to come and hang out for the session and ask questions and um, offer their experiences as well that would be just part of the podcasting experience. So I was like, well, if you're happy to have your voice on there, if you're happy for me to read out comments, then let's roll that way. And so, so far, that's what we've been doing. I've just been recording them live in the group. Um, everyone has the option to come. I see their faces and they add comments and occasionally unmute themselves and add their voice to the conversation. And it's been really cool to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, for the most part, my podcasts are with people mm -hmm. but yeah the ones that i've done where where i've just been talking it's it's a little i don't know it's so much easier to you know and that's for you guys at home we actually have you know when i record these podcasts i can see the guests so you can see them nod and you can see you know mm -hmm. it just makes the conversation flow easier i think yeah i remember reading some books around body language and how um our communication style and the way that we communicate is really dependent on reading into the signals and tuning into the body language of the person that we're in conversation with and that the worst fate that many of us can befall is actually having someone in front of us who is non-communicative as far as like you can't register what they're thinking and so if you were to go into a, a, a job interview and they're just like a completely you know a panel of like blank faces you immediately find that anxiety producing because you can't sort of sense into what it is that's going on. And I think there's a part of that when you're recording by yourself and you're not getting feedback from a real life human that you're relating to, that there's, it's a very unnatural and vaguely concerning experience to, to be in. And, and I find that it messes with your train of thought, that you don't have uh, the most logical progression to thoughts or the communication doesn't flow as easily when you're talking to right. yourself by yourself. So yeah, that was part of the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like it's a great way. I was actually thinking when you're talking about that, I'm thinking, hmm, I could do something like that too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's been great chatting with you and thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and I will see you in a couple of months. You will. I will see you. Thank you so much for having me here.
I'm so excited to see that you're there. Um, you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you again on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.